Welcome to you all to the latest episode of The Global in the Granite State, a podcast of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. I appreciate you taking the time to listen into our program here and for your interest in better understanding how a dysfunctional government can hamper the United States' ability to accomplish its global goals. As always, I am Tim Horgan, the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire and your host for this program. As a nonpartisan nonprofit organization, we are dedicated to bringing you the best globally focused programs to help you better understand what is going on in the world around you. In addition, as a community supported nonprofit, we are honored to have an ever expanding global audience and a deep roster of members and supporters who help make this work possible. A special thank you to our podcast sponsor, McLean Middleton, for providing the support necessary to keep this program going. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Learn more at McLean.com. You can join this wonderful group of supporters today and show the world the value you find in global conversations by visiting our website at wacnh.org. Now, on with the show. of the top leaders joined me on Capitol Hill yesterday, led by General Tony Zinni, who was our CENTCOM commander, and Admiral Jim Stravitas. The last post he had in government in the military was the Supreme Allied Commander at NATO. And they said it best. I mean, they said, if we're not out there on the playing field, others are going to fill it, and we're not going to like who those others are. So I think it was pretty clear that we need to be out there on the playing field. That is Liz Schreyer, the president and CEO of the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, or USGLC, a broad-based coalition of over 500 businesses and NGOs that advocates for strong U.S. global leadership through development and diplomacy. This organization has advisory boards across the country, including right here in New Hampshire, that bring together the voices of those who are concerned about international affairs and the state of the world to engage in efforts to ensure the United States continues to uphold the mantle of global leadership. There are so many global challenges out there, and America needs a full-functioning government and a full-functioning team on the playing field to be out there to make sure that we're advancing our economic interests, our security interests. As the United States continues to lurch towards another government shutdown, currently set for November 17th when the recently passed continuing resolution runs out, there are a myriad of issues that face the world and impact the United States allies and its interests. Of course, there is a huge array of issues that come up when the government shuts down, but here we are concerned with the impact on the U.S. government's ability to conduct foreign policy, protect national security, and simply be present on the world stage. So, a little scene setting first. 
Government shutdowns did not start happening until 1981 under President Jimmy Carter. 1974 was the first time the government gave itself a deadline to pass a new budget, and they missed that target five times in seven years. However, the government did not shut down. It wasn't until Carter's Attorney General, Benjamin Civiletti, issued legal opinions that stated when there is a gap in funding, non-essential government functions must stop. In the decade that followed, there were five government shutdowns, each lasting only a couple of days. If the government does shut down this year, we will match that mark after having 18 years of no shutdowns between 1997 and 2013. The threat of a government shutdown has seemingly become a yearly tradition as Republicans and Democrats wrangle over various funding, political, social, and moral issues. This is not the place where you'll get finger pointing in one direction or the other. There's enough of that going on elsewhere. But suffice it to say that public opinion generally does not look upon these shutdowns positively. Okay, now that we have that background, what are some of the critical issues that are facing our national security and foreign policy goals? I'll just rattle off a few right now. We've got Putin's war in Ukraine now in its 20th month that is not only attack on our democratic values, but economically it's had a massive impact, particularly in Europe, which we have a $7 trillion trade relationship with. We now are looking at the Hamas and Iran who have disrupted this new conflict in the Middle East, which is terrifying to watch, not to mention the humanitarian, growing humanitarian crisis in Gaza. There's ongoing global food crisis, record high displacement of people in the world, the highest since World War II, and the list goes on. And the world is watching when we shut down. And guess who's not taking a time out? Putin, Xi Jinping, Al-Tawli Khomeini. I mean, they're not taking a time out. So even before we get to the impact it has, which is very real, but there is a geopolitical impact about how a shutdown, particularly if it's a prolonged shutdown, meaning weeks at a time, impact just how the world looks at it and what our adversaries do in terms of our interests. Of course, there are a wide array of countries, organizations, and groups out there who love nothing more than to see the United States in disarray. For many authoritarian leaders around the world, the U.S.'s inability to keep its government functioning allows them the chance to say, look, democracy doesn't work. It allows our enemies, both big and small, to leverage partisan divisions through influence and disinformation campaigns online. We aren't even giving them the challenge of having to come up with content, as our own governmental dysfunction provides that for them. In 20, 2019 shutdown, Beijing had a Global Times paper where they used it to actually make that exact case. And they said that, quote, America's boldly portray their democracy as a global model and sell its standard worldwide. But the government shutdown has been going on for nearly three weeks and involves 800,000 government employees not being able to work normally. And a second issue that I have talked to a lot of people in a number of conversations over the last week at the highest levels of government on a range of issues, and they're feeding it not just publicly of what I just read, but in terms of their fostering it with misinformation. And we know and we can track a lot of what's going on in terms of their own social media, as well as our social media, to push some of this narrative out. Okay, I think we can all agree that fueling the narrative around the world that democracy doesn't work is not in our best interest as we try to build democratic coalitions around the world. 
Now, we cannot make domestic decisions solely through the lens of how the world will see these actions, as our adversaries will spin anything for their own interests, or just ignore when we are doing good things. However, this should factor into the conversation of why it is important. However, there are very real impacts that go far beyond how people view our country from the outside. Looking at the State Department first, one of the biggest issues is the effect it has on passport and visa services. While passport services typically remain open, there has been a history of slowdowns in previous government shutdowns. In 1995, after the three-week shutdown, the Washington Post reported that there was a backlog of over 200,000 applications. So if you are looking to get your passport renewed or get a new one, be prepared to wait. While this may seem like a small nuisance, that was before the pandemic slowed the process even further, and applications have only continued to rise as people look to spend their COVID savings on international travel. The analogy I would use is like driving up a hill but being in neutral, which is a very hard thing to do. So on one hand, the helpful part is that with some good planning, the State Department overseas is viewed as essential, and the good planning part is that the funding component of it keeps going until it runs out. So if it was a really prolonged shutdown, eventually that funding runs out. I just want to quickly jump in here and mention that the funding Liz is talking about here comes from various fees for services that people pay to the embassies abroad, including visa and passport services and a few other consular things. So, as long as that money keeps coming in, which is not enough to fund all the work embassies do, they can continue to do some of their work. The problem is that the mothership, the headquarters in Washington, many, many, many of those jobs are furloughed. So those are likely about 75% of the positions at the State Department in Foggy Bottom are furloughed. At USAID, it's a little under 65% of those. Other of our civilian agencies are anywhere between 50 to 75%. So the analogy I've been thinking about is if you think about a Walmart and you could go to the store and those are open, but the headquarters were not, you could imagine that your shelves aren't going to get stocked and if something breaks, you're not going to be able to get fixed. So you were just talking about Ukraine or any of these protracted conflicts or new conflicts, the humanitarian crisis growing in Gaza, how can you actually move those forward when you don't have the resources and the people in Washington? So it's essential work, but with a lot less staff to do it. This is indicative of the challenges that are faced by the State Department, as they can continue limited services, but they are not able to do their critical work that the government has deemed, quote unquote, non-essential. Although I would argue that many of these tasks are quite essential to building relationships, engaging in diplomacy, and ensuring the U.S. has a voice at the global table. So it can no longer hire new staff. It can't travel for non-essential reasons, speeches, diplomacy, anything that's considered non-essential. So if you want to bring all of our cultural education programs, all of our events and convenings, all of a sudden the U.S. doesn't show up. So activities where we need to be at and others are going, but we're not there is a terrible disservice to America's interests. The cultural programs, those are vital for America's interests. The world is a interconnected place today. 
And for us not to be engaged with others around the world is a disservice to us and disservice to the rest of the world. One of the things that worries me is payment for local staffs in the embassies are very likely to be cut off in many of these embassies, and that will cause huge ramifications for us. So the essential work can get done, but there is a whole slew of additional work that won't happen. Of course, none of this happens in a vacuum, and there are a huge number of knock-on effects when the government shuts down. As of last count, there were over 50 open ambassador positions in a number of critical countries. If the government shuts down, all work stops in Congress, and they only focus on getting a budget or continuing resolution passed. That means they are not talking about ambassador confirmations, they are not able to promote military personnel, and the president cannot focus on imposing sanctions, one of our government's favorite foreign policy tools of the day. Interestingly enough, as you might have seen today, we have a new speaker that was just elected, and there's a lot of folks around Washington, D.C. that made an assumption that we're heading towards the shutdown. Now on November 17th, it's looming pretty large. And one of the things we've been watching is what happens at embassies and their ability to be successful, particularly in terms of being able to compete against China. We don't have confirmed ambassadors. Let's just take the Middle East. In Israel, in Egypt, in Syria, we don't have a lead in our coordinator for counterterrorism. Those all become on hold. So imagine how we can be successful without ambassadors and without key people in the State Department or in any of our diplomatic fronts. Go back to what I said at the very beginning. Our adversaries are not stopping in putting their diplomats on the field. They're all over the place. In fact, China has more diplomatic posts today than America does. Isn't that a stunning reality? So in addition to the difficulty of just not having people show up to work, Congress stops functioning. Government stops doing most of their work. In addition to not being able to even confirm an ambassador, we're not holding meetings and getting legislation passed and moved. So everything gets pushed further and further down the road and down the pipeline in terms of when these can happen. So here we are in mid-October, And let's say on November 17th, we end up with a shutdown, whether it's a day, a couple days, or a couple weeks. That means to get from here to the end of December, we have to talk about the appropriations and whether we had a budget or not. So we should come back to that. But leaving that aside, which is impossible to leave aside, how do we fund the government? But in terms of other legislative work, how do you even imagine in the number of days we have left legislatively that things can get done? like nominations, like legislation. I was talking to a congresswoman yesterday where the speaker had not yet been named three weeks in. And it's not a shutdown. It's just we didn't have a speaker. And they said, nothing's getting done. The committees are kind of meeting, but nothing's getting done. She said, all everybody keeps doing is writing letters. It's not legislation, writing letters. Now, that's a decent thing to do, but it's not legislation. So imagine a shutdown and that much worse. 
For those who may not fully understand the legislative process, it is important to note what these letters are and what the point of them is. We are not talking about donor thank you letters here or holiday cards either. It's easier to think of them as positional policy papers. A bunch of congressmen and senators will send a letter to the president or a cabinet secretary with a position saying, please take a look at this, or this happened to be on a foreign policy issue. They're very useful. They're very important. It's not legislation. No disrespect to a thoughtful letter. It is an important part of the process that we do here in Washington. It's not legislation. It's not confirming an ambassador. It's not confirming the coordinator of counterterrorism. And that's the point that this congressperson was making. I'm not going to call it busy work because it's not busy work, but it's not the serious work that Congress was sent here to do. So not only is the government shutdown extremely annoying and quite a huge headache for those government employees who won't be getting paid during that time, we are willfully tying one hand behind our backs on the global stage. If we see 50 to 75% of government agency staffs being furloughed, we cannot focus on all the issues swirling around the world that are of critical importance to U.S. national security and foreign policy. A distracted government is a government that misses critical warning signs. No matter your opinions on the ongoing crisis in Israel and Gaza, You cannot disagree that the massive protests by Israelis against the judicial reform bills earlier this year did not distract the government from concerns in Gaza. This was not a willful or intentional act, but it is a simple matter of resources and time. A government shutdown in the U.S. hampers whole-of-government approaches to critical issues and draws attention away from things that are simmering just below the surface. However, many people go through their entire lives not knowing anything about the State Department, the U.S. Agency for International Development, the Peace Corps, and many other amazing global programs the government runs. So, why does any of this matter? I hope you have your own thoughts, but here are some things to think about in this conversation. I spend a good deal of my time talking and listening to members of Congress, as well as traveling to communities around the country and asking them a pretty simple question of what's it worth for America to be engaged in the world. And the most common answer to that that I get is the competition with China. If we're not out there, who's filling it? And are we making sure we have a seat at the table, a fair playing field? And so these tools of America's engagement, of making sure we're opening up markets in places like Africa, in making sure that we help write the rules is so important of whether you're a progressive Democrat or a conservative Republican. I hear it over and over again. I was just in Little Rock, Arkansas with Senator John Bozeman to launch what USGLS calls our Arkansas State Advisory Committee and our work there. And we had a conversation, Walmart is based there. Now they sell, they get, they get a lot of their products from China and they sell a lot, but they also compete. And so this idea of America to retreat from the world is just crazy to both Senator Bozeman and to a company like Walmart and to our military leaders who are with. So I think it is not a hard sell as long as you can show that it's an effective use of our taxpayer dollars that we're investing. 
There are many other reasons why people believe this is important, and we are left wondering what to do. Of course, the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire wants you to decide what you do with the information we provide through our various programs, but here's a starting point for some of your thinking. I think members of Congress need to really understand what's at stake. And it's very incumbent on all of us who care about America's role in the world to communicate that. What's at stake is our national security and our economic interests in addition to our values. So the focus that we at USGLC have is at making sure they understand that looming ahead is the funding mechanism to make sure we stay engaged in the world. So on November 17th, why will it shut down? It will shut down if we don't fund the government. And within that, there are going to be two big issues. The first is the regular FY24 international affairs budget. Well, what does that mean? It means funding everything that we do in our civilian toolkit, State Department, USAID, Peace Corps, all of the tools that we have to engage in the world. There are 12 bills that the Senate and the House have to pass. The House has already done four of theirs, and the Senate has done zero of theirs. So between now and November 17th, they would have to finish passing all those, agree, which they don't yet, that they have to look exactly alike and the president would have to sign them. So I'm betting 0% chance that will happen, but I could be wrong. Maybe they will do that. So they probably will need more time to get all of those done. But they're really important to us. The administration put a very thoughtful, in terms of how I look at the legislation, this isn't a partisan point one way or another, but they put a a serious number down at the beginning of the year, recognizing the global interest for us of additional 15% from current levels. The Senate said, well, we're going to put a bill down that is about 3% over current levels. And the House passed a bill that said, nope, we're going to cut it back 14%. Where it lands, I don't know, but that's what's at stake. And then the second thing that's at stake is that there is now a new proposal for emergency funding to address the national security emergency needs that address Ukraine, China's expansion and moving a little closer to too close to Taiwan and the Middle East. While many people may not believe that their one voice carries much weight with their congressional representatives, I want to take a moment to vent a little bit here about this line of thinking. Sure, if you are the only one thinking about an issue, not much will happen. However, you are not the only person who cares about international engagement in your community. If everyone starts thinking about how their voice, quote unquote, doesn't make a difference, then nothing will change because no one will talk about these issues. This means you need to find your global community and bring the weight of your collective voice to the conversation. Start with your local World Affairs Council or an international exchange community or Rotary, immigration groups, and on down the line. Getting these people activated and engaged can show your elected representatives that your community does care about this which is especially important here in the United States, as many officials do not believe Americans care about the world. Through our various programs that the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire runs, along with all of our sister organizations across the country, I can tell you here and now that this is not really the case. 
A great example of community building is the work the USGLC did to bring together retired military leaders to advocate with Congress about the importance of continuing our foreign policy efforts. Yesterday, watching these 30 retired three and four star generals and admirals visit with members of Congress on the Hill, I think that members are, are a little taken aback when they see former combatant commanders and four-star admirals, you know, come in, flag officers come in, where they expect them to come in to talk about the military and why we need more DOD money, Department of Defense money, which they're for our military, but that's not what they're there to talk about. And what they very effectively communicate is that their whole career was out all over the world. And what they talk about is why we cannot keep America safe on the military alone. That the world is so complex and the issues are about food and hunger and health and migration and water and climate. And these are issues that have to be addressed differently with diplomatic tools and development. And they urge Congress to support State Department and USAID and these other agencies. And members of Congress listen. They listen differently when these folks are talking. And it was really interesting when they talked to them about why the supplemental emergency national security package is so urgent, needs to be comprehensive, cannot be split up into fragmented pieces. And I think they moved the needle yesterday. I want to wrap this conversation up with some good news as we continue towards a potential government shutdown. Although hopefully by the time you're listening to this, the shutdown will have been avoided. With the election of a new Speaker of the House, that body can get back to their part of the work on avoiding a shutdown. The new Speaker did say in a letter that he wrote to his conference, if another stopgap measure is needed to extend government funding beyond the November 17th deadline, I would propose a measure that expires on January 15th or April 15th based on what can obtain conference consensus to ensure the Senate cannot jam the House with a Christmas omnibus. So that means that the new speaker, Mike Johnson, has some interest in possibly avoiding a shutdown. Good news. Fingers crossed that this potential unforced error on behalf of the government can be avoided, and I would love to hear that this is the last time we talk about a government shutdown for a very long time. We have heard about potential shutdowns, some averted, others not, to a point in which people are getting numb to the idea. But it should be clear that these shutdowns have real effects both here at home and abroad. The brinkmanship we see on both sides of the aisle continues to call into question the effectiveness of our government and impacts hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. Hopefully, this conversation has helped to illuminate the issues that are much broader than what happens within our borders, and in the simplest sense, just makes us look bad on the global stage. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Global in the Granite State, a podcast of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. We are grateful that you have taken the time to join this global conversation and think more deeply about the impact that government shutdowns have on the critical global work of the United States. You are a part of this global community that helps make 
this work possible and leads conversations within your communities that can seed community action. Thank you for all you do. As always, Tim Horgan has been the jack of all trades for this podcast. Our intro music continues to be admin by A.A. Alto, and our interlude music is Futurist Beat by Royalty Free Music. Thank you, and we can't wait until our next episode. <laughs>